Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybro. Today we're joined by special guest Catherine Lester to talk about Watership Down, both the 1972 novel and the 1978 animated film. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! Hello. Hi. Uh, this is usually the point where I say, hi, Adam, but we're leaving that for now. That's not important. Uh, I'm here too. Because <laughs> we have a guest with us today on this episode. Um, we can also say hi to Adam. But um, uh, Catherine Lester is a lecturer in film and television at the University of Birmingham. Her research centres on the intersections of the horror genre and children's cinema which is the subject of her monograph, Horror Films for Children, Fear and Pleasure in American Cinema, on Bloomsbury 2021. She's also published on a variety of topics relating to children's media, including a chapter on children's horror television in the book Global TV Horror, and a chapter on representations of female solidarity and villainy in Frozen in the book Discussing Disney. Her next project is an edited collection focusing on the 1978 animated film Watership Down, to be published by Bloomsbury in late 2022. Hi, Catherine. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us today. <laughs> Hi, and thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you about all things scary and childish. Yeah, I uh, can't imagine better credentials for appearing on this podcast <laughs> than <laughs> that biography. Um, um, uh, hi, Adam. Hi. Yeah, uh, I've, I've got a copy of Catherine's book here with me, Horror Films for Children. Fear and Pleasure in American Cinema, which mm. I've been been really enjoying. Um, I, I must say that your your definition of horror films for children is far more academically rigorous than ours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I I felt like I kind of had to draw some boundaries, otherwise, it, feasibly the the book could have 
addressed anything that children watch that is remotely scary or or maybe unintentionally scary so mm. and that would just be too much and I, I was kind of um I looked back through the history of the things that you've discussed on the podcast and I'm really impressed actually there's, there's just so much there that I did I've never even heard of which I think goes to show just how how much there is in this area but also that the need for me to sort of narrow down my boundaries a little bit <laughs> oh yeah absolutely I mean it's funny because when we started the podcast a few years ago now you know we we remember I remember Ren saying I don't know if we're gonna have enough you know this might be quite short-lived <laughs> and that's really been far from the case uh, that we never we never run out of material but do you want to explain what your definition, your working definition of children's horror or children's horror films um, is in your book? So I focus on films which were intended to be for children, first of all. Um, and and then the question is, well, how do you separate children's horror films from other kinds of children's films? Because um, obviously horror, if it's, if it's too scary... Um, it, it it risks being not suitable for children and if it's not scary enough then it risks being considered not horror so there's a really mm. delicate balancing act um and so because of that children's horror tends to overlap quite a lot with other genres like fantasy and like comedy so mm. um i decided to to focus mainly on films where they seem to follow this a kind of standard horror structure and dealing with with um specific kinds of themes like encountering the monstrous um films that are trying seem to be trying to evoke feelings of fear and and disgust and and that kind of thing so so that would include films like like gremlins which is on the cover of the book one of my <laughs> all-time favorites um uh films like paranorman and Coraline, which are both animated films by by Laker Studios, um, The Witches, and all kinds of all kinds of films. Yeah, yeah, a, f a few of which we've covered. We did Paranorman and we've done The Witches um, with with Coraline. We're just saving it for our hundredth episode because we're we're both big fans. Yeah. It's definitely one of the inspirations for doing the podcast in the first yeah. place. We feel like it needs a a specific occasion yeah. to be made of Coraline. Uh, there is a, a new book that's just come out about Coraline, the film, actually. Um, and that's also with Bloomsbury, um, edited by someone called Misha Mihalova, I think. Um, so you should check that out. Um, I know there's a new collection coming out sometime in the future on Nightmare Before Christmas as well, which was my favourite film as a child um, and definitely very formative for me. I find it interesting that you... You, you mentioned it, obviously, but say you don't consider it a children's horror film because Jack Skeleton is very much an adult character with adult concerns, I suppose, rather yeah, than yeah. a child substitute. Yeah, so again, as part of my way of narrowing down the focus a bit, I decided I wasn't going to focus on films which which are clearly supposed to be, you know, suitable for children to watch, but, but where the main character is an adult. Um, I think that you absolutely could consider, like, it is a children's horror film, but for just the purposes of um, trying to, to not have the corpus be too unwieldy, I decided um, not to include it, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering if you consider The Rabbits and Wardship Down to be child substitutes at all, 
or whether you think they're too adult in their kind of worries and concerns. Um, it's in, it's it's a good thing you asked that actually because um, in the the ed- edited collection that I've got coming out on the film, um, in my own chapter for that book, I basically read Watership Down as children's horror, and I read the rabbits themselves, or at least the main group of of good rabbits. I read them as substitute children. Of course, there are other rabbits in the film where you can't really read them as children. It wouldn't make any sense. Like General Woonwort is clearly supposed to be the big bad adult. <laughs> a bit like a bit like the how, you know, the witch, the Grand High Witch in The Witches is the baddie of that film, General Woonwort, and people like the the chief rabbit who doesn't believe the other rabbits at the beginning, they seem to be like substitute adults um, in contrast to the main group of kind of child rabbits yeah yeah that's that's really interesting well, i look forward obviously to, to reading reading the chapter um don't want you to you know spoil it too much in advance. <laughs> <laughs> um i mean probably the most provocative kind of statement um i think in the whole book is really this this defense of the garbage pal kids movie <laughs> i think you might be the only academic to have launched an academic defense of the garbage pal kids movie in existence i suspect yeah. um, i don't know if this is that there's a entertaining through line in the book of kind of ribbing on roger ebert which i really enjoyed so i don't know if this was more roger ebert ribbing uh, just trying to sort of annoy the ghost of ebert or I, mean, um, can- I do respect Roger Ebert very, very much. And actually, I'm not I'm not sure what he said about the garbage pail kids. Um, but yeah, he did. He did have some strange things to say about, you know, some other children's horror films. But yeah, the garbage pail kids, I absolutely deserve like to, for that to be called a, a contentious <laughs> statement because I have watched the garbage pail kids and it's horrible. It is horrible. <laughs> Although, but but what I found interesting when I dug into the reviews a bit was the way that um, many of the reviews by adults seemed to take issue with the fact that it was about children who were basically not doing as they were told by adults, and they weren't. Mm. When when really, what's what's so bad about the film is the fact that the special effects are really bad the production values are horrible the script is terrible but i think there is clearly something potentially pleasurable for children about the fact that it's about these these kids who 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 decide to like overthrow like the adults who take care of them and it ends with them riding off in the sunset with on these quad bikes that they've stolen (laughs) so yeah i felt it was worth kind of defending on that basis even though it's basically indefensible in practically other every other respect i mean you know i think child viewers as well as adult viewers can take pleasure from yeah these different nooks and crannies and subversive places um in terms of kind of subversive pleasures um i was really caught um partly because you mention it in relation to another academic's research in the Demon Head Master, but this idea of crazy space. Um, can you can you explain that? Oh wow! Can I explain it um, without having it in front of me? But yeah, so crazy space is this concept that was coined by um, a children's television academic called Moira Messenger Davies. And um, she borrows it from the show The Demon Head Master, in which 
um, it's used to describe this kind of nonsense language, I think, that the children use to communicate with each other. And Messenger Davies basically takes that idea and uses it to describe certain children's television programs um, and which we could also apply to film and, and other types of media um, to describe the ways that they they kind of construct these these spaces that are supposed to be for children only and which maybe adults can't quite comprehend or understand or maybe not even aware of. Um, so yeah, maybe I don't apply that to the garbage pail kids in the book, but I think maybe you could in that maybe for for a child, um, they could watch it and and feel like it's speaking to them on on some level that they really like and resonate with. Whereas for us watching it now, we'd be like, I don't understand. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Watership Down really kind of indulges in crazy space. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's obviously quite quite a kind of gloomy looking, melancholic sort of film, and obviously it's structured as a kind of mini epic, really. Um, so it's not quite that anarchic, but it's, it's a really seductive idea, right? Crazy <laughs> space, like. Uh... <laughs> so I guess the way to sort of segue into Warship Down, which is obviously the kind of main film and book we're going to be talking about today, um, is to ask. I mean, you've already sort of answered the question yourself that you do potentially consider Wardship Down children's horror. I mean, was Wardship Down produced for a child audience? Well, that's the interesting thing is that it wasn't. So I th- I think it's very much a kind of anomalous film t- to consider children's horror in that sense, because obviously it's about rabbits rather than children even if they are kind of childish in certain ways but um and even though now it's widely received as a children's film um or even not received as a children's film when i bring it up a lot of people will say <laughs> oh yeah that's a terrifying children's film or it's definitely not for children which in some way seems to apply the label of children's film to it like <laughs> Anyway, so but it wasn't it wasn't actually produced with a child audience in mind as the primary audience. Um, the the director Martin Rosen was very clear about the fact that he didn't consider it a children's film in the way that a lot of other animation of its era, like Disney films, were considered children's films. And um, he was very careful with the marketing of the film as well to make it clear that it was a very dark film um i've got a poster behind me um on the video which people can't see but it's the kind of classic poster of bigwig's silhouette in a famous scene where he gets trapped in a snare which gets across the sense of violence that's in the film um the trailer is very upfront about the fact that there is a lot of violence and lots of potentially unsuitable elements for children in the film but it was then really all of these external factors which which led to this widespread belief that it was for children and therefore ended up with lots of children watching it in the cinema or, or on TV and becoming perhaps a bit traumatised by it, which is the reputation that it's got. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, Ren, did you want to sort of introduce both the book and the film? Yeah, Um so yeah, as, as we were saying, kind of watch it down is is sort of one of the titans of children's horror in terms of 
reputation, um, just uh, in terms of sheer numbers of children frightened. Um, and this reputation is kind of influenced by sort of these two aspects that can make people underestimate it, I guess, being about rabbits and being a cartoon. But um, it's the, the book, the novel um, is a 1972 adventure novel by uh, English author Richard Adams, and it was made into an animated film release in 1978, and then recently a CGI Netflix series in 2018, which we might touch on, but is not going to be our focus. Um, As a a kind of brief overview, the story follows a group of rabbits who leave their warren after one of their number, Fiverr, has a premonition that destruction is coming. They cross the countryside to create a new home for themselves, and along the way they must navigate the dangers of uh, Elil, which is a, what they call the, uh, the, thousand, the thousand enemies of rabbits, the foxes and badgers and so on, and um, uh, navigate the, the varied cruelties of, of men and uh, eventually a warren that has sort of devolved into a militarised dictatorship. And along their journey, they're kind of guided by their mythology about Thrith, who made the world, and Ella Ryra, the resourceful and mischievous prince of rabbits. Um, the driving force of the narrative is their need uh, for rabbit does, as they are all boy rabbits, um, uh, to continue the life of their community. And it's uh, this need that drives them into the dangerous moron of Ephrafa, which is led by the memorably tyrannical General Woundwort. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So, as you say, it's an adventure novel, really. And when I mentioned this to my partner, Antonia, you know, she she didn't really think of Wardship Down as a children's book, per se, and sort of pointed out that in the 70s, there was quite a lot of, kind of literature which focused on animals and uh, sort of animal characters, although it's quite clearly structured around the hero's journey. Um, so it very much recalls there's legends and myths and, say, Greek epics um, with the uh, kind of call to adventure, you know, these characters having to leave their home and then facing various trials and tribulations, uh, maybe needing to look inwards and face a kind of inner darkness uh, and eventually kind of reaching some kind of new home uh, or building a new community. Is it something that you watched or read as a kid, Ren, or indeed Catherine? Um, well, I, I'm a, I'm the total newbie to it. I haven't I hadn't seen it or read it until um, preparing for this episode. So ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I am the blank slate. Of Watership <laughs> Down. I um, I I actually encountered Watership Down for the first time when I was probably around age fourteen. Um, my my dad decided to buy the DVD and we watched it. Um, and then I encountered the novel a few years later when I was doing a children's literature uh, course as part of my master's degree. And it was actually the novel that I fell head over heels in love with. Um, I was really taken by this really complex and rich rabbit mythology that it sets out. It made me realise that rabbits actually are really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not just these like fluffy little victims but they can actually be quite um aggressive when they want to be and and that kind of thing and it was because of that that I now have my own two pet rabbits oh. <laughs> yeah so I'm I 
I'm also I, I came to it relatively late in in life. I'm not one of the people who who was exposed to it as a child and traumatized by it. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. For me, like with a lot of kind of films, I remember scenes from it. I don't think I was ever sat down to watch all of it. I think I might have caught some of it on television. And um, the scene that kind of stays with me is from fairly early on in the film where they um, come upon um, Warren, which seems very kind of sedate kind of too sedate uh, first it seems almost utopian um but then the implication is is it's being managed by some kind of farmer and that the the rabbits are being sort of farmed and then presumably kind of harvested for their their furs or or meat um and uh, it has a very odd the the rabbits they meet have this sort of slightly woozy, lilting, aristocratic way of speaking <laughs> and speaking these odd sort of poems and riddles. Um, and that that's the thing I remember from Wardship Down. Um, rather than any overt violence, I remember finding this very strange and off-putting and not really knowing knowing what to do with it, what, what sense yeah. to make of it. Yeah. I think for a film that is about rabbits in the countryside, it has a lot of really, really striking... Um, non-naturalistic imagery uh, peppered amongst what are very accurate and and realistic kind of landscapes and that's that's one of them I think because the warren is kind of painted in these purple and orange colors which is supposed to mark it out as strange and and not trustworthy Mm. and it's a very memorable part of the film yeah, that was uh, one of the bits that I, I was going to bring up because I think a lot of people sort of think of the sort of most memorably kind of violent bits as sort of the horror of Watership Down. But the, this this incident with the the Warren of the Snares or um, Cowslips Warren um, is is very creepy. It has this very sort of slow creeping horror in which they, you know, they they this is quite soon after they've left their home Warren and. They kind of meet this very large, healthy-looking rabbit called Cowslip, who isn't at all wary of them and is just like, oh, yes, come to my burrow. This is rather a big warren. Yes. Uh, please, uh, help yourself to Flayra. Uh, there are fresh roots here daily. The man throws it out. Man? What man? Uh, and they, they, they sort of... They go there, but then they start to notice that um, whenever they start a sentence with where the rabbits change the subject, um, they're not allowed to ask any questions. And it's a, it's quite a, a slow build of horror. Yeah. And then culminates in, in Bigwig being being trapped. So then you, it really leads up to this explosion of violence, even though what comes before is very kind of subdued. Which is, yeah, Bigwig trapped in the snare, which is the first kind of moment of graphic violence in the film and probably one of the most upsetting in that it's quite protracted. Um, so Big Wig's sort of choking with the wire uh, around his neck and the other rabbits are trying to, to save him, although Cowslip kind of stops the rabbits from going out by basically saying that uh, what will be will be and that they shouldn't really interfere Um because that's sort of the price of their comfortable life is that these rabbits have come to accept that uh, they were well quite 
a number of them will will die in snares, and they can sort of never mention the ones that have that have gone. It's it's very dystopian, um, and it's a concept that reminds me of sci-fi actually something like mm. logan's run is that the one where you you have a really nice life but you only get to live up to the age of 30 or something and then mm. you get killed yes yeah <laughs> um, or, or almost brave new world with with these characters who are yeah very sort of sedate and and kind of have anything they could wish for but don't really have any freedom um so it does feel like a little sort of meditation on on freedom and and what these rabbits have sacrificed to have their comfortable lifestyle. So, yeah, Big Wigs, we introduce some of these characters. So it's... Yeah. Big Wigs is my favourite. So the... <laughs> <laughs> Big Wigs great. Um, we have... Um, the ensemble cast of rabbits is fairly large. Um, so the, the main characters of the original group, so there's Fiverr who had the premonition um, to leave. There's Hazel who is kind of designated the chief rabbit of the group and um, bigwig who's uh, kind of the fighter pugnacious type um blackberry who's uh, the clever crafty one um pipkin who's a small a small rabbit who sort of wants to wants to do his best um i think that's the the main lot of the sort of initial group um then they get um they get joined by by more characters as they go along. They pick up Strawberry from um, from this snared Warren who decides to leave when they when they're when they've um, they're running away after they've rescued Bigwig from the snare, um, and um, and they also get a couple more uh, survivors from their original home Warren, which. Um, um, as it turns out, was destroyed by um, men with diggers and uh... yeah. In the new Netflix version, it's made very clear that it's a housing development. Um, but yeah, in in both both adaptations, um, you have this rather kind of hellish scene of, of the the Warren being filled in and. The rabbits sort of being suffocated to death with with gases and and soil, um, which yeah is is a very upsetting scene in in both both the film and the Netflix version. Yeah, and from that, um, uh, Holly, who's um, he's one of the Owlsler, right? Of the um, so rabbit yeah. rabbit guard or rabbit guard rabbit prince. <laughs> Rabbit, yeah, um, and um, and his kind of court jester character, uh, Bluebell, um, <laughs> I find quite a peculiar little character. But um, yeah, um, and they're they're joined by a seagull as well, of course, the wonderful yes. Kiha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, Kiha is brilliant. Um. <laughs> I love the relationship, the like slightly antagonistic relationship between Kihar and Bigwig, um, especially in the mm. film. And I would just gladly watch like a buddy film about Kihar <laughs> and Bigwig. <laughs> yeah, because Hazel uh, has the uh, has the idea that they sh- they really need all the allies that they can get. So he he sort of saves a 
a mouse that's that's going to be killed and says, well, you know, well, a mouse could could help us later in some way. And then and then they find um, Kiha, who's been injured and um, and separated from the rest of his flock of gulls who are going to the ocean or the big water, as he calls it. And um, they're they're only sort of able to communicate in a in a kind of uh, pigeon language because uh, the rabbits speak Lapine and uh, one of the sort of really interesting aspects of of the book and the film is that we get uh, phrases of Lapine throughout it um, sort of like from words for various predators like a, um, like a lendril is a badger I think and a... yeah um, when when the film was released um, for critics to review it critics received a glossary of <laughs> of all of those mm-hmm. words um which i think is really interesting because because viewers didn't have the benefit of that and actually i don't really think you need it because the the both the the book does sort of translate for you but the film doesn't bother and it doesn't really need to because it's always quite you can sort of work it out depending on context and depending on on what you see on the screen it's really well done i think mm. it's definitely something that adds to the richness of the book and the film there's something um Reading the book, I was reminded I'm not a big, big Tolkien fan, to be honest, uh, but it did remind me of Tolkien quite mm. a bit, um, partly just because of the epic structure, um, but also in some of the world building and this, you know, the care that's put into the building up the mythology and building up the language and this sense you get that you're seeing glimpses of what is a much larger universe. Um, you really do get the sense, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but reading the book that Richard Adams had this whole thing kind of mapped out in his head, mm. um, which really helps bring it to life. Um, so, um, Kat, your your up- upcoming book is uh, specifically about the 1978 film. Um, what kind of approaches are you taking with that? Well, it's an edited collection, so it's made up of about um, 16 chapters. One of them is written by me and the rest are written by other various experts on animation and and related areas. Um, And I've also written the introduction to the book. So it covers covers a wide range of things and approaches it from, from lots of different vantage points so obviously my approach to the film is thinking about it as a children's horror film um we've got chapters on um the kind of political allegory of the film um chapters on its production um including a a chapter that's been co-written by two brothers whose father was actually an animator on the film um arthur humberstone so they had access to all these amazing archival materials and have pieced together this kind of um, a narrative of, of his contributions to the film. And and so hopefully when the book comes out, um, some of those uh, materials will be printed in the book, which won't have been seen by most people before, which is exciting. Mm. Um, there's mm. also chapters on the music, obviously, um, people when you think of the the watership down music you would think of bright eyes the song but um in the book the the two chapters on music actually focus on the score by angela morley um and the way that it kind of evokes horror um and other kinds of emotions um 
yeah and just loads of other chapters on on various themes and things that the exciting things that the film is doing um and mm. and as a whole really um i wanted to i just wanted to draw more attention to this amazing film and and i was really surprised to find that not very much had been written on it in an academic context um even though it gets written about quite a lot in in the press um and on social media whenever it gets broadcast on tv especially <laughs> a few years ago it was broadcast on easter sunday um and got a bit of a backlash uh, because of that, because people were like, oh, what are you thinking, exposing children to this on Easter Sunday, you sadists, which I just thought was hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the book as a whole, I, I especially wanted to put to put Watership Down in its context, because like I said before, it wasn't really intended to be a children's film, but for various reasons, including the fact that it's animated and about rabbits, the fact that the BBFC gave it a U certificate, which still seems completely wild. Um, <laughs> and all of these do, other do, things. Do you know any of the reasons for this then? Because it yeah. does seem like, you know, the BBFC are normally known historically for going in the other direction, um, not giving a film that has quite a lot of bloody violence in it a yeah. you that seems quite uncharacteristic so i can actually read you um part of the report which is online on their website um and they they said that quote animation removes the realistic gory horror in the occasional scenes of violence and bloodshed and we felt that while the film may move children emotionally during the film's duration, it could not seriously trouble them once the spell of the story is broken and that a U certificate was therefore quite appropriate. And the film still has a U certificate. Um, but this is part of the reason that I, that I think putting it in context is really important because it does seem like really misguided that they gave it that certificate. But... Um, at the time, in 1978, the BBFC didn't have as many ratings as they do now. So um, they basically had the choice to give it a U and make it accessible for potentially all children or to give it a more restrictive rating, um, which they didn't have the 15 at the time, but it would have been basically the equivalent of the 15. And then no children would have been able to see it. So I think basically they were weighing up their options and thinking, like, we do think that children, like, you know, some children will enjoy this. So they, they went for the more, um, what's the word? I don't know. They they went for the more open approach. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, that, that does... That does help explain explain yeah. the reasoning behind it. Um, Although the fact that it's still got a U certificate, even <laughs> though they could give it like a PG or a 12, is maybe a bit more questionable. <laughs> I mean, it is worth noting that the violence in it, I mean, clearly in terms of animation, now my understanding is that there wasn't, you know, the uh, British film industry or film industry in England has, you know, always uh, been kind of localised in certain areas, certain parts of London, and kind of existed a bit in fits and starts. Um, and, you know, while we might think of specific British animators, or maybe little studios, particularly, obviously, Aardman, um, from the kind of late 80s onwards, um, I can't think of many British animations, apart from, obviously, the... 
uh, animated version of Animal Farm, um, which I was definitely shown shown in school, and again doesn't really feel like a cartoon for children. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's been much in the, if there's much in the book about the British animation industry and where Watership Down sits in terms of that history, because obviously yeah, this is pre Ardman. Um, I think when uh, when people think of kind of, um, that's a good question actually because I'm not I by by no means apart from Watership Down I'm by no means an expert on sort of British animation more generally, um so I'm struggling to think off the top of, off the top of my head what else there might have been at that time in British animation specifically, but it is interesting that it came the film came out at a point in animation history where Disney was kind of waning a bit um Mm. it was a time like the studio was really struggling in the animation department at that time um some of those films are really fondly remembered now films like Robin Hood and the Aristocrats and um stuff like that but at the time it was seen as a bit of a low point for Disney yeah so you had films like Watership Down as well as films from all around the world, which were kind of emerging as as these alternative adult animations. Um, other films included um, Fantastic Planet, which is a French sci-fi mm. film, um, which is really surreal. You had uh, the Lord of the Rings animated film by Ralph Bakshi, um, which came out very, very close to Watership Down. So they got compared quite a lot in the press. Yeah, vi- vis- visually has some similarities, actually, in terms of the kind of green and brown colour palette yeah. and things looking a little bit muted and dismal at times, but also sort of pretty as well. Um, yeah, I can really yeah. see the visual similarity there. Yeah, and of course you had, um, this is probably British, the the Yellow Submarine film, the Beatles oh, film, of course, which yeah. would have been the late 60s. Mm. So so it was this really interesting time where um, it seemed like there was this opportunity for animation outside of the Disney studio and outside of America, especially, to really kind of take this opportunity, which I don't think really happened. And Disney sort of recovered around the late 80s. And then we had the Disney Renaissance. Um, so I think... Because of that prominence of the Disney studio throughout like the whole of the 20th century and beyond, like any other animation that's outside of the kind of Hollywood model um, has to kind of try to provide some alternative in a way. And I think like British animation like Aardman is good at that. It's it's very clearly doing something very distinct that mainstream American animation isn't doing the Laker stop-motion films mm. like Coraline and Paranorman are also doing that. So I don't know if that really answered your question about kind of British animation specifically, but... Yeah, I, I think it's worth... I think you're right that within this context of, I guess, after Walt Disney's death and the Disney studio perhaps putting money into live-action And the theme parks. And, mm, yeah. Um, the, yeah, there's definitely an emergence. I mean, my own academic writings being on Czech animation... And certainly in in the in the sixties, that's where we see uh, the really big, memorable feature-length Czech animated films uh, do quite well in film festivals and on mm. the world stage. And yeah, I think that probably is partly because Disney were quite on their most stable footing at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth us sort of 
saying that these character designs are very non-Disney, right? Apart from perhaps later Disney, like Fox and the Hound, um, which is a little bit less, certainly when the Fox and the Hound of that film are adults, they're not so cutesy. Uh, because these rabbits... I mean, I don't know, like, like Ren, Gavin, do you find these rabbits cute in the film? Ooh, I find all rabbits cute, <laughs> but I don't know if I'm, yeah, I'm biased, maybe. <laughs> Ren, what do you think? Oh. I mean, some of them are cute. They, they, they have the, they have quite big eyes when they're, when they're scared and definitely. They, yeah, they'd, certainly yeah. if you were to put like Thumper from Bambi next to <laughs> any of the rabbits in Watership Down, you would be able to see a clear difference um, in the yeah. level of, of cuteness. Um, although it is interesting that the, the, the animator Phil Duncan, who animated Thumper in Bambi, did work on Watership Down. Oh. And he was specifically yeah. like headhunted because they were like, oh, you're really good at animating rabbits. But they clearly, they, they must have kind of directed him to go a bit more realistic and not the sort of really hyper-cute um, aesthetic that Thumper has. Because the rabbits, like, facially, they're not, they're a little anthropomorphised. Um, but they to me, they either look cross or scared. Like, <laughs> most of the time, the rabbits either look quite, like, sort of furrowed-browed and, you know, they'll look a bit annoyed um, and argumentative or they'll look really worried and anxious. Um, which I think is something that adds to the kind of atmosphere and the general tone of the film. That and and with the book, the book doesn't really let up. You know, it. I don't know how you found reading it, Ren, but I, I was finding it quite an anxious read um, because it's a one thing after another, and they are always being pursued and you know set upon. Um, I think the thing that the book has is the um, is the storytelling interludes where you get. Um, Oh, which rabbit? Is it Dandelion who's mm. the storyteller who, um, telling stories of Elorira and uh, um, which are kind of the sort of, well, I was going to say light relief. Some of them are actually pretty dark when we, you get the story of uh, the black rabbit of Inlay, who's the kind of rabbit grin reaper. That's, um, that's uh, quite... Uh, did, did you did quite you want to read bit. some of that? Um, um, I wasn't sure if you, you, you had had any, any I I don't I haven't um I haven't marked any of that um the only passage that I put down was um was about black of our um is that for texture of the week or no <laughs> should we do yeah texture let's do of the texture week, of the week. Can... Um, okay. okay so should we I, I we're not necessarily to force you to to sing cat but um <laughs> did you want to try to sing texture of the week to bright eyes ren like um right like texture of the week <laughs> oh i'll let you do that <laughs> When I, when I think of Bright Eyes, um, I don't know, have, have both of you seen The League of Gentlemen? I can't remember, Ren. If, okay, so in, in have you seen it, Kat? Yes, but I have no idea where this could be going. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So in The League of Gentlemen, there's this horrible character um, played by Steve Pemberton called Pop, uh, who's this sort of awful, kind of uh, awful, slimy landlord. Um, and there's a whole thing where he 
talks very emotionally about what shipped down and how he used to play it for his sons. <laughs> so, um, and he, he starts with singing Bright Eyes, but he does it in this very, I'll probably just play the clip, but he does it in this really sort of awful husky, like, you know, Bright Eyes, <laughs> burning like fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so that's kind of ruined the song for me, um, um. me personally, because it's a lovely song, and Art Garfunkel sings it very beautifully. But, um, but yeah, r- ruined. <laughs> Another thing that nineties com- British comedy is ruined. For yeah, me. yeah. Um, do you want? Do you want to start? Uh, I'll, I'll go first because uh, I've kind of. Um, um, <laughs> I, I've got this uh, this hairbrush that I'm putting up to the mic um, because. Mine is just a, it's just a little line from the book where it says, and once they heard a corncrake calling as it crept along the long grass of a path verge, it made a sound like a human fingernail drawn down the teeth of a comb. Oh, nice. I just like that. That was quite, quite nice. Cat, <laughs> <laughs> um, did you, did you choose out a texture? Um, Sort of, although I think I may not have interpreted texture of the week quite as literally. Or oh, that, that's fine. We, we've had we've had some ideological textures okay. before, like uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I was basically just trying to think of stuff that I've watched in the past few days, and and which which has really stuck with me. Um, and this is completely different from something like Watership Down or Children's Horror at all. <laughs> But um, I recently watched the new Celine Sciamma film called Petit Mama. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which um, which landed on the streaming service Mubi last week. And I liked it so much that I watched it again the very next day. Um, and it is, is child protagonist. It is right? a child like, It's not a children's film, but it is, yeah. I think, I think you could say that it's a children's film. Like, children could watch it and enjoy it. But it's, um, it's about um, a, a young girl who basically manages to accidentally go back in time and meet her own mother when she's the same age so they're both supposed to be about eight I think and they basically just have this really lovely time together very fleetingly for a couple of days um which is a description that that sounds so simplistic and it is but the film is so um laden with kind of melancholy but also joy it's just really really lovely um and I try I was trying to think is there a specific moment that I could talk about for texture of the week but really I think it's the the tone of the the sort of atmosphere of the film is very very quiet um which is very similar to Skiyama's previous film Portrait of a Lady on Fire which is a film where music is very important but it doesn't have a score so there's lots of these moments of silence um, and and Patima mine is very very similar um and I don't think I'm doing it justice but it's completely gorgeous and everyone should oh. watch it as soon as possible <laughs> and you say it's on Mubai at the moment yeah isn't it? it is and it's only about 74 minutes long it's just this perfect little <laughs> gem I, I, it is on my watch list on Mubai, so I will I will make an effort to watch it now. And it yeah. sounds like one that I could actually watch for my stepdaughter, maybe. Yeah. Um, 
I think that sounds like a good length as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for my texture, I, I was going to go for General Woundwart's face, um, <laughs> which is sort of, I don't know what the word, like it's not rumpled exactly, but it looks, I don't know, he, he, he looks kind of scarred and sort of scraggly and it, it's really textured. Like you can really imagine... Like probably not scruffling this rabbit's face because you probably like bite your hand off, um, <laughs> but but it, it looks looks really. It's definitely the fleshiest of all the rabbits in the <laughs> film. Yeah, he's um, yeah, he's yeah, very think... imposing. You tell your chief bigwig that if he and Heisenthray and the others aren't waiting outside when I come for them, I'll tear out every throat in the place. I think one of the um, one of the screenshots that seems to get uh, shown a lot is of General Woundwater at, at the at the end in the tunnel, kind of <laughs> <laughs> bearing down on the rabbits with his sort of bleeding from various bits mm-hmm. of his face and his kind of mismatched eyes. Uh, is quite quite an, yeah an imposing sight. Um, I should probably explain a little bit more of the plot in case people are entirely lost. But um, which uh, so the, as I said, they. Um, they want to get does for their warren so that they don't just die out. And um, they, uh, Kihar goes out scouting and says that there's a warren sort of fairly nearby that they could could go and investigate. So um, Holly and Holly and a couple of others end up going first, um, but uh, kind of come back very um, sort of traumatized and possibly injured and uh, say like, yeah, this is a, uh, you know this this warren isn't isn't a normal warren there uh, it's a highly sort of militarized um regime where um all of the all of the rabbits uh have their own mark which is like a literal mark like a scar on their body to show which sort of regiment they belong to and they're only allowed to to go out and eat at certain times and they're they're all controlled by the by the ausler and um and the uh, is uh, Ephrafa. That's it, that is right, isn't it, Ephrafa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they um, they send out patrols to sort of scout the area, and um, so um, so they kind of barely managed to escape from Ephrafa. Um, but um, but Holly does come back with the information that there are those there who want to leave, but they're just not allowed to. So. Hazel still thinks that it's their best chance to um, to get those for the Warren. So they come up with this plan where Bigwig is going to go in and sort of infiltrate Ephrafa and say he wants to join, um, which is, is quite um, a quite a good little little plan because he goes to General Woundwort and says, "Oh, I, I want to join Ephrafa," and General Woundwort's kind of what <laughs> <laughs> sort of why? Why? But he can't say why would you want to join us? Because <laughs> it's, it's probably so, quite touched, really. It's quite, quite like, oh, wow, yeah. gee, no one's ever said that before. <laughs> um, so, um, so Bigwig um, becomes an officer and uh, sort of is kind of second in command in in a in a mark, and uh, and there he. He finds um, he finds the the doe um, Heisenflay, Heisenflay, who um, who was uh, who was the, sort of the leader who wanted to leave the Warren and kind of manages with the help of um, Kihar they managed to uh, to escape. But um, they 
while he's there, Bigwig also decides that they're going to um, uh, bring Blackavar with them, who is a rabbit who tried to escape and uh, was horribly punished um, as a result. So I'm just going to read the description of when Bigwig comes across Blackavar. There's This rabbit had very dark fur, almost black, but this was not the most remarkable thing about him. He was dreadfully mutilated. His ears were nothing but shapeless shreds, ragged at the edges, seamed with ill-knit scars and beaded here and there with lumps of proud bare flesh. One eyelid was misshapen and closed askew. Despite the cool, exciting air of the July evening, he seemed apathetic and torpid. He kept his gaze fixed on the ground and blinked continually. After a time, he lowered his head and rubbed his nose on his forepaws in a listless manner. Then he scratched his neck and settled down in the former drooping position. Bigwig, his warm impulse of nature stirred by curiosity and pity, went across the run. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'My name is Blackavar, sir,' replied the rabbit. He did not look up and spoke without expression, as though he had answered this question many times before. "'Are you going to Silflow?' said Bigwig. No doubt he thought this was some hero of the Warren, wounded in a great fight and now infirm, whose past services merited an honourable escort when he went out. "'No, sir,' answered the rabbit. "'Why ever not?' said Bigwig. "'It's a lovely evening.' "'I don't Silflow at this time, sir.' Then why are you here? asked Bigwig, with his usual directness. The mark that has the evening sylphay, sir, began the rabbit. The mark that has they come, I... He hesitated He hesitated and fell silent. One of the owls laughers spoke. Get on with it, he said. I come here for the mark to see me, said the rabbit, in his low-drained voice. Every mark should see how I have been punished, as I deserve for my treachery in trying to leave the warren. The council were merciful. The council were merciful. The council... I can't remember it, sir, I really can't. He burst out, turning to the sentry who had spoken. I can't seem to remember anything. <laughs> it's quite harrowing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, so they do escape. They do escape. Um, they do escape. And I can't remember. It's actually been a while since I've read the novel in full. But I think Black of Our survives in the novel. But in the mm. film... Sadly, he does not. And actually, I think of all the deaths in the film, and there are a lot, he probably has the most horrific one because um, he's kind of... I th- I think he's kind of torn apart by either Woundwort or one of the other evil rabbits. Um, and you get this shot of him with these huge gouges in his mm. side and just this blood pouring out. It's really um, quite mm. gruesome. I mean, it, the film really escalates in terms of its violence. Um, so the last third is definitely the most the most violent and bloody. Um, I was watching it with my stepdaughter, Matt, and she was saying, oh, I thought this had a reputation of being violent in, in the first <laughs> half. And I, oh, you know, there's nothing. And then by the end of it, it was like, oh, God, OK, that, that was a bit much, you know. Um, I think especially when the dog starts, they, they part of the plan is to let this dog loose. Uh, and so the dog is uh, having a great old time with it. The dog's probably like, this is the best day I've ever had. Um, not so fun for the Cause, rabbits. Because um, they, they, um, they, they make it, the, the rabbits make it back from Ephrafa to the Warren, but um, they are followed by Woundward. Um, yeah, in the film, this sort of happens immediately in the, in the book. There's a bit of a gap, but... Um, they were trying to turn quite a long book into a quite a short film, and I think it's, 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 it did a very, did a very good job of it. Um, 
But yeah, there's this final sort of climatic scene where, and Bigwig kind of memorably buries himself in the earth to um, to have the element of surprise on General Woundwort as he's coming down the tunnel. <laughs> um, I think that concision is really to the benefit of the film because um, we mentioned the recent Netflix um, or BBC adaptation, which you can watch on Netflix, and it's much longer than the film. I think there are four episodes, um, which reach about 45 to 50 minutes long. Um, and to be honest, I, I mean, I, I think in the book, um, there's a fair amount of rabbit politicking, I suppose. You know, the rabbits obviously discuss their plans quite a lot and you get more of those dynamics. Um, the book is, a bit, uh, the film is a bit choppier. It is a bit more episodic, perhaps. Um, but I think that works really well for the film. Um, personally, personally, I found the BBC adaptation a little bit boring, uh, if, if I'm honest. Uh, it does drag a little bit. And it's, it's a shame because it has a really star-studded cast, um, you know, who, who all do really well with the voice acting. Um, I recently watched The Detectorists, so I was quite quite happy to hear Mackenzie Crook as one of the rabbits. Um but it's it's CGI, and you know I, I probably on the podcast have spoken of my love for stop motion before, and generally having less time for CGI. I do think that some of Pixar's films are brilliant and have a lot of time for Moana. Um, so I think CGI can work when it suits the material. Um, here, I guess the budget isn't quite what you would expect for say a Pixar production. Um, it is a BBC budget. And the animation does look, it looks a little bit stark, perhaps a little bit lifeless. Um, a bit dated as well. When when it was broadcast, lots of the reactions on social media were like, oh, am I watching a cutscene from a PS2 game? You know, which mm. is maybe a bit harsh, but I think understandable. Um, because yeah, it's just, considering that the film has got, a lot of the time it does have a muted colour palette, but it does also have lots of really beautiful and stark and colourful imagery, especially in some of those surreal um, sections. And the, But the series, in trying to go for an even more realistic aesthetic, it just ends up looking really drab and plain. Mm. It's how I felt about the so-called live-action um, Disney remake of The Lion King. Yeah. Um, and I think it speaks to how animation as a medium, at its most expressive, it can, you know, it can transform the world. And I think the original Watership Down uses abstraction really well. So actually those bits that stay in the mind, like I think particularly the Bright Eyes sequence, it's really, really pared down. It's very minimal. You've basically just got these two black silhouettes so dancing about on the screen with very little background and it's it's really abstracted um and yeah that's very evocative and stays in the mind a lot better than the kind of attempt at a more photorealistic style um which again is limited by the budget but even even if it were more high budget i still think that um yeah, the, the the more abstract style of animation, that that stylization, like you talk about the colours in the original film, and I I think that's 
it creates much more of an interesting atmosphere, much more of a dreamlike atmosphere yeah. um, than a more realistic style. And um, I think a great missed opportunity with the series is that it does open with this really, really stunning um, prologue. So similar to the film, it opens with a prologue about how the sun god Frith, which is the rabbit kind of religion, how it created the world and all the animals. And it's um, depicted in this really beautiful shadow puppet style. It's completely gorgeous. And then it drops that and doesn't come back to it at all. And I just think it's it's also a shame, not only that they, they didn't continue with that sort of um, more expressionist style, but also that they didn't take the opportunity to include more of those interludes. Because in the novel, you have lots of those stories about El Herrera um, and the Black Rabbit of Inlay, and it, which really builds out the rabbit mythology, which you can't include in the film. Like, it's understandable that they, they didn't try to squeeze some of those those in but the series had the opportunity to do that because it was longer form and I think it's a real shame that they they didn't take that opportunity yeah absolutely I think it is a bit of a missed opportunity um yeah which is a shame but obviously as with remakes they don't efface the originals um you know if if you watch the Netflix one and find it lacking you can always of course go go back to uh, Rosen's original. Yeah. Um, there was also uh, a TV series made in 1999, which was in traditional animation and broadcast on CITV. Um, it's some. It, it does have its fans, although it's not quite as well known as as the film. Um, yeah, so if if people are wanting to see a more long form adaptation of Watership Down and is not as ugly as the Netflix BBC series, then they could look at that. Although because it's because it was made for CITV, it basically strips away all of the the violent content from the novel. It looks visually actually quite um, similar to the Animals of Farthingwood, mm. which is a show I grew up with and a show that's often spoken about in the same breath as Watership Down and, and surely a show influenced by Watership Down and which obviously has a much wider cast of characters that starts with a, a similar inciting incident of um, housing development or something um, being built on the kind of home that, <laughs> the, hedgehog. The, a hedgehog gets run over by a truck and it's very upsetting <laughs> yeah so, so in some ways maybe not as graphically violent but in terms of the variety of deaths uh, more extreme than Watership <laughs> Down because there's a variety of different animals um, I, think, I think possibly the kestrel or one of the birds ends up in a cement mixer oh my god <laughs> which, which is particularly particularly upsetting oh, hell. Um, um, so so yeah, watch it. Um, Animals of Farthingwood is another one I think that is sort of known known for its its levels of violence <laughs> um, that un, unsuspecting kids were, were probably troubled or, or haunted by. I, I I remember playing with my friend Edward when I was little. had had figurines, and we'd do our own Animals of Farthingwood stories. Um, yeah, in terms of the kind of no, no. Um, I, so I'm sorry. I, um. I need to, um, friend of the pod, Ava, insisted that I mention when we talk about Watership Down, the uh, Watership Down-themed uh, crust punk band, full of Ephrephra, full of Ephrephra, full of Ephrephra, that um, her friend George was the drummer in, um, who created a uh, trilogy of uh, Watership, 
Down-themed albums called Owsler, Elil, and Inlay in the oh, wow. 2000s. I... Or if you want to enjoy Wardship Down in a completely different uh, genre, then. Uh... And I note that um, Steve Jackson Games released quite early, actually, a Wardship Down role-playing game, like a tabletop one. Um, like um, I think I think possibly in the eighties or something. Um, so it's had it's had a long like legacy in many ways. Yeah, it's, um, it's been adapted to theatre and radio as well, I believe. I can really imagine it working well on stage, mm. actually, and you could really kind of push the abstraction there. Um, <laughs> and then obviously, Rosen went on to direct another film, which really isn't a children's horror, um, Plague Dogs, uh, which, if anything, just doubles down on uh, on the misery in Watership yeah. Down. Plague, Plague Dogs is a much more downbeat, um, more upsetting film than Watership Down, like... Uh, I historically have not been keen on dogs, although um, my partner and I have been living with dogs now for two years, and I have started to consider them my dogs as well, <laughs> Olive and Eddie. Uh, so I have come to love them. Um, yeah. <laughs> Olive, almost despite herself, who is is she's a poodle cross and exhibits all the uh, the wit and intelligence and irrit- irritating qualities that you would associate with poodles, <laughs> but. But when I watched uh, Plague Dogs, I definitely wasn't a dog person at all, um, and 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 yeah, it made me cry, and yeah, I, I really found it quite crushing. Um, yeah. And the dogs in that are also on the run and escaping, but from a laboratory, they've been subject to vivisection, and the two dogs, uh, yeah, are, are trying to survive. Um, yeah, on the moors. <laughs> it's um. I actually only watched Plague Dogs for the first time and probably the last time a few months ago. <laughs> and I thought I would be prepared for it because of Watership Down, but but I was not. And it was just relentlessly bleak. Like a very, a very skillful film, I think, for what it's trying to do, but not something I want to subject myself to ever again. <laughs> Yeah, if you imagine like Lars von Trier or someone, or like oh, Hanukkah yeah. making making a, an animation about animals, that's pretty much what it's like. It's it's quite astonishingly bleak. Yeah, and f- yeah, for all the the crap that Watership Down gets for being violent, it is at least I think really an optimistic film, and at least ends in a way that feels really uplifting, um, and ha- and does have moments of comedy, for example, with Kiha the seagull, which which help to. Um, give it a bit more of a tonal balance whereas plague dogs it's just misery from beginning to end <laughs> it's relentless yeah. it really is um yeah i don't know if you haven't seen it have you ren don't. yeah i don't i i wouldn't <laughs> if i'm honest i don't think i don't think you've got with it um yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i'll say this right i've shown my stepkids um Oh, I'm going to forget. What, what, what's the really miserable Ghibli film with the kids in Grave in the of the World Fireflies? War? Yeah, I've shown my stepkids Grave of the Fireflies. I will say that my 10 year old stepson wasn't bothered by it at all and mostly just commented <laughs> on all the logistical mistakes they were making uh, in terms of staying alive. But, you know, that, that's George. Um, I would never show them Plague Dogs. There's no way. Like, I w- would not do that. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that's a warning for anyone who like <laughs> listens yeah. to this. Like, oh, maybe I'll watch Plague Dogs. Tread lightly, you <laughs> yeah. know. Or, or it, it is—it's a heavy watch. 
Um, and the only other only other thing I wanted to mention that I think it might have influenced is the very long running um, book series Warrior Cats uh, that I know a lot about from my stepdaughter, who's is like a lifelong fan. Um, and Warrior Cats seems quite similar in terms of all the kind of cat politics and cats under threat, um, but it doubles down on the religious themes a lot more. Like the kind of whole religion and spirituality in Warrior Cats is like very deep and rich and complicated. Um, so that that was Matt's observation watching Warship Down was basically, well, they don't go into the religion very much. <laughs> I think felt that it was quite lightly sketched. Um, I've never heard of Warrior Cats, but I like cats and I like, you know, Warship Down. So it sounds like something I would enjoy. I mean, yeah, it's a very long-running young, young adult book Hello. series. Um, I think, you, you know, I, they probably started at just the point you would have probably been just too old for it. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite, it's very big in the Netherlands, actually. Um, like, when I was in the Netherlands in Maastricht, like, there were posters up for, like, the audiobook of it, um, like, at bus stops. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't think it's so well-known in Britain. But in America and some of Europe, it's very big. Um, but yeah, I, I, we might cover it at some point. It certainly gets it certainly gets very violent, <laughs> as as the name would imply. But yeah, um, are there any other last little thoughts on Warship Down? Um, oh gosh, I I just have I have so many. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah. We haven't. We've only had <laughs> about an hour. May, to, maybe something that's <laughs> to interesting to, this, to yeah. highlight that I haven't had a chance to yet is the fact that um, when it was released, the critical reception was actually not that great. Um, it tends to be thought of now as either mm. like traumatizing, but still kind of at least respected as a work of art, and and some people are very very fond of it as well. But when it came out, like some of the, the critical reception was actually very, very mixed, which was something I was really surprised to find out when I went digging and find, finding those um, contemporary reviews. Um, yeah, which I just think is is really interesting and shows us how something like R Rotten Tomatoes is a bit useless sometimes when it doesn't... Because <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes would have you think that it's very, very well respected, which it is now, but Rotten Tomatoes doesn't have any of those older historical reviews mm. um and there's mm. one in particular which i kind of want to read out just because it's so mean um, <laughs> okay <it's>, great <laughs> it, it was a dual review <laughs> of watership down and the lord of the rings by an oh, animation wow. historian called michael barrier mm. and he he basically said that he found watership down to be quote very stupid <laughs> And he said that there was no, quote, no sign that any intelligence was at work in making the film uh, and that it was so unremarkable that it's almost as if Watership Down had never been released at all. But I think the film ended up proving him wrong wow. because it's now very well remembered and loved by <laughs> lots of people. And on that bombshell... Well, <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much, Kat, for joining us um, to talk about Watership Down and children's horror in general. It's been really brilliant yeah, to have thanks, your perspectives on it. And can you remind us of when, so your book, um, Horror Films for Children, Fear and Pleasure in American Cinema, is already out and 
I definitely recommend it. It's, it's a great read and covers a lot of real classics of the genre that you know you, I think, done great work in in actually arguing for as a genre. Um, and when's the book on Watership Down coming out? As far as I know, it's set for release in September of this year. Although I know publishing deadlines can move about, so who knows? But um, yeah, hopefully it won't be too long. That's great. Awesome. Brilliant. Um, so our, um, our intro music is by Maki Yamazaki. Our artwork's by Letty Wilson. Our outro music's by Joe Kelly. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at StillScaredPod or email us at StillScaredPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, leave us a nice review if you want on Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think stay safe, creepy kids, and don't watch Plague Dogs. <laughs> Just don't do it. Don't do okay. it to yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Right. Bye for now. <laughs> Bye. Awesome.